Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Melissa Walker, the George Dean Johnson Jr. Professor of History at Converse College, and Giselle Roberts, Honorary Research Associate at Australia's La Trobe University. Together, they edit the series Women's Diaries and Letters of the South, published by the University of South Carolina Press. Melissa Walker and Giselle Roberts, welcome to Working History. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So together you edit the Women's Diaries and Letters of the South series. Can you briefly explain to listeners what the series focuses on and how it all got started? Sure. Um, The Women's Diaries and Letters of the South series is published by the University of South Carolina Press. And we publish documentary editions of letters, diaries, memoirs, editorials, and oral history interviews that were created by women residing in the American South from the colonial era to the present. Um, We call it WDLS for short. (laughs) And uh, WDLS was established in 1995 by the founding editor, Carol Blesser. And Dr. Blesser was a professor of history at Clemson. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was also one of the founders of the Southern Association uh, for Women Historians. And she had served as president of the Southern Historical Association and had had written and edited several important volumes in Southern history, including In Joy and Sorrow, uh, Women, Family and Marriage in the Victorian South. And she had edited the diaries of James Henry Hammond uh, and the correspondence of Maria Bryan. Since 1995, she managed publication of 28 volumes in the WDLS series, Mm -hmm. Um, and the two of us took over after Carol passed in 2013. And before we jump into a discussion about some of the volumes in the series, let's talk a little bit about what documentary editing is all about. Um, People often associate the terms documentary and documentary editing with film and visual media. But we're talking here about physical documents, letters, diaries, and the like. So would you talk a bit about what the field of documentary editing encompasses? Sure. Um, Documentary editors or documentary historians tell stories about the past by transcribing and annotating primary material. And in our case, of course, that's first-person accounts written by women of the South. Mm -hmm. Documentary editions can range from a short diary edited by a local historical society to a multi-volume collection of presidential papers. Essentially, documentary editors take that raw material that historians are using to write historical monographs, Mm -hmm. but they are actually editing it into a form where it can be enjoyed by general readers as well as historians and students. Documentary editions, I think, have traditionally been published in book form, but ebooks are gaining some ground in the field. Um, one example is the Skinner Family Papers, which was recently edited by Mary Maillard, and that features three ebooks supported by a website, digitised primary material, and a blog. So there is this growing engagement with new technologies in the field. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning is that documentary editions, either in print or ebook, differ from digitization projects, which are 
increasingly undertaken by archives and historical societies where the material is scanned and made accessible via online repositories, usually free of charge. Mm -hmm. Digital editions are different again, where the manuscript papers are collected, transcribed and annotated, and these ones usually require a subscription. This format is well suited to large collections such as the Dolly Madison digital edition uh, and there's several like this. Researchers are able to search for material according to name, date, location, correspondent and other variables uh, such as those and digital collections usually encompass a wider range of material than that extends beyond first-person accounts. So things such as account books, ledgers, lists and other material that might not necessarily be well suited to a documentary edition. Okay, okay, that's good clarification. And uh, what's involved in preparing a documentary volume versus a more traditional history monograph? Um, well, preparing a documentary history volume requires a very different process than a monograph. Uh, but they do share an important thing in common. Both types of work must contribute to the historiography of the period in question. Mm -hmm. And in documentary editing, there are some fixed parameters, and the editor must build a narrative using the documents available. And I can, Giselle, do you want to so, talk a little more about that? Yeah, I was going to say I can talk listeners through the basic steps involved mm -hmm. in assembling a documentary edition. Mm -hmm. So like any project, uh, as Melissa said, we must make an assessment of the material and we ask questions similar to those that historians ask when preparing a monograph. So does the material contribute to the historiography? Does it tell a good story? Uh, do the documents create a strong narrative? And mm -hmm. This is where it's very different to a monograph because not all stories are good documentary stories. In documentary history, the narrative is essentially the documents. So we're looking for strong stories like the correspondence between two individuals or a diary or something that's robust enough not only to carry but to become the narrative. The second decision an editor must make, and, and this is also shaped by the material, is what type of volume they're going to produce. So there are three genres, so to speak, in documentary editing. And the first of these are book-length editions with a focus on one individual or family. This is the most common form used by documentary editors and it's the one that's overwhelmingly represented in publications of the Women's Diaries and Letters of the South series. Mm -hmm. And then we have multi-collection volumes, which are assembled by an editor around a theme, a group or a time period. And examples I can think of are Michael O'Brien's An Evening When Alone, which, are fe which featured four journals of single women in the South, mm -hmm. or Stephen Berry's Princes of Cotton, which featured four diaries of young men in the South. So this idea of small collections of individual stories, in this case around young women or men, uh, around a particular theme, time period or both. And finally, we have survey documentary editions, usually around a theme or time period using individual documents from several collections. Mm -hmm. And the example I can think of is Joan Cashin's Our Common Affairs, which featured diaries and letters of dozens of women in the antebellum South. So once we've decided what kind of volume we're going to produce, the next real issue is copyright. So does the material require permission? And this is especially the case for those working with 20th century material. Mm -hmm. The general rule for unpublished manuscripts is death plus 70 years. 
So if the archive doesn't hold copyright, then the editor must contact a direct descendant and obtain written permission to publish. It's certainly not an insurmountable obstacle, but it is one that needs to be addressed in the early stages of a project. Melissa and I have worked with editors on several occasions to obtain permissions for materials, and we've been incredibly successful in tracking down descendants, and it's always exciting to to get to that stage. Mm -hmm. I think usually their biggest concern is feeling that they don't have authority to grant permission, but once they realise they do, most are delighted to support bringing the story to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. Next step is selecting the documents. Is the material from one or more collections or one or more genres and is the focus on one or more individuals? Usually we have more material than we can include in one volume. In my own projects, for example, uh, I had twice as much material for the chosen period than what ended up in the book. So maintaining the plots and subplots is actually key to this process. Sometimes you can take out one document and it changes the story completely. So it's being mindful of that. The next step is we arrange the documents. So will the documents be arranged chronologically or thematically are are issues we have to, to deal with. And once we've made those decisions, we arrive at transcribing. And first-time editors often think this is the easy part of documentary editing, but it's actually one of the most challenging aspects of a project. I always advise to check and check again. Um, In the course of a book project, for example, I would check my transcript against the originals half a dozen times in a line-by-line edit until it's free of errors. And at the same time as doing that, we make method- methodological decisions. So what will be standardised? What's the methodology on emissions, illegible words, spacing and paragraphing? And the importance of preserving the integrity of the, doc- of the document is critical. Melissa and I have prepared a methodological handbook for editors working within our series and we'd be more than happy to send it to anyone interested in or currently working on a documentary project. And finally, we annotate the selection. So we identify people, places, events, quotes that become the interpretive framework that allows the reader to navigate the text and get the most out of the story. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of the general steps involved in the, in the process of editing uh, a documentary volume. Right. So it's not just as simple as, as transcribing, you know, footnoting and off it goes to the press. Uh, much more complicated than that. Right? And, <laughs> and there's lots of decisions to make uh, in terms of capitalization and punctuation and spacing. And so, and so yes, it's, it's a matter of negotiating those. Right. And just real briefly before we move on to talk about some of the, the volumes in the series, um, how did each of you come to be involved in this particular historical field? It seems to be sort of a real niche, niche almost, you know, within sort of the broader, um, the broader field. Well, they say some books change your life, and I can certainly pinpoint the one that changed mine. I was 19 when I read The Civil War Diary of Sarah Morgan. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Charles East's edition of the diary, which was the first time that Morgan's account had been edited and published in its entirety. And I hesitated about buying the book for several weeks. And then one day I did. I remember reading the first page and being struck by the power of a first-person account. And I finished the book that weekend. Mm -hmm. I was in my first year of an arts degree at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, studying Australian politics and reading book after book on the American Civil War. 
I discovered that La Trobe University's American History faculty was ranked in the top three in the Southern Hemisphere, and I changed my major, and I studied under Pulitzer Prize winner Reese Isaac, who wrote Mm -hmm. The Transformation of Virginia, and labor historian John Selman, who wrote the brilliant book Gastonia 1929 on the Laurier Mill strike. Uh, I received my PhD in 2000, published a monograph on my dissertation, which was on young women in Mississippi and Louisiana during the Civil War, and then started editing the courtship correspondence of Sarah Morgan and Frank Dawson. After reading Sarah's Civil War diary, I really wanted to know more. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that work, I contacted Charles East, who was editor of Sarah Morgan's diary and former director at Louisiana State University Press. And we discussed the Morgan family and documentary editing every other day throughout the project. And he became one of my finest mentors. He taught me his uh, methodology for documentary editing and it's what I use today. So after the volume on Sarah, I edited the correspondence of Mississippi woman Eliza Lucy Irian Nelson, and Melissa and I are now editing a volume on the progressive era, so I've moved into the 20th century, which Mm -hmm. has been rather fun, and uh, have two other book projects in process. So there's lots of wonderful documentary stories to tell, and there's not enough time. Sure. (laughs) And Melissa, how about you? How did you get into the field? Well, I came at it in a more circuitous fashion. Um, As an undergraduate history major at Maryville College, I had read documentary collections and used them in research, but I had never really thought very much about what they were or how they were put together. Mm -hmm. And I went on to earn my doctorate in U.S. and women's history at Clark University, where I wrote a dissertation on the experiences of upcountry Southern farm women in the transformational years during and between the two world wars. Mm -hmm. And that work became the basis of my first book. And I used a lot of kinds of documentary sources for that book, including agricultural extension service records, New Deal program records, and other sources. But my main source was a series of oral history interviews that I conducted with Southern farm people. I still teach at Converse College in South Carolina, And while there, I met Carol Blesser around, uh, I think this was around the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And she suggested to me that I edit some of my best oral history interviews for a volume in the WDLS series. And I had never really thought about doing documentary editing, and I had no idea where to begin. But I was really intrigued with the idea. And so I did some reading in the work of a number of oral historians, um, especially Valerie Yao, who's written a very good handbook on on oral history work, and uh, Luann Jones, who has done a lot of work with rural Southerners. Mm -hmm. They have written about how to edit oral histories to make them more accessible to a general audience. And that process is similar to using written documents, but there are some differences. Mm -hmm. So I set out to edit a group of my richest interviews into readable narratives that became Country Women Cope with Hard Times in the WDLS series. I was really learning about documentary editing as I went, but I loved the finished product because it made the wonderful stories told by the smart, resilient farm women that I knew and and came to love uh, available to a much wider readership than we'll ever read an academic monograph. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so let's let's shift gears a bit and talk about some of the volumes and the individuals beyond those who you've already mentioned, um, whose documents are published in the WDLS series. Giselle, perhaps you can give us some examples that deal with the 19th century, since that's more your focus, uh, focus and Melissa, examples from the 20th? Sure. So Carol Blessed was a historian of the Civil War era, and she really oversaw the publication of some wonderful documentary editions for this period for our series. They include the correspondence of Augusta Jane Evans Wilson, who was one of 19th century America's most popular novelists, the diary of Lucy Breckenridge of Virginia, and for those interested in the upcoming PBS series Mercy Street, the diary of Confederate nurse Ada Baycott. Mm. The series also features some great doc- documentary stories on Reconstruction. Diary writing among privileged women of the South really reached its period during the Civil War. And in contrast, accounts for the post-war period are rare indeed. And documentary accounts are rarer still. And one of my favourite volumes in the series is Live Your Own Life, the family papers of Mary Bayard Clark, which was edited by Terry, Terrell Amistad Crow and Mary Moulton Barden. So Mary May Bayard Clark was a fascinating woman. She was a, a planter woman from North Carolina who married a lawyer with a love for speculative financial ventures. And in my book, that's a story that's never going to end well. (laughs) By the 1850s, um, her husband had commenced what would become a disastrous term as president of the San Antonio and Mexican Gulf Railway. And the family, including their four children, relocated to Texas. The problem was that William spent more time in New York trying to secure investments for the railway and he left Mary and the children to eke out a precarious existence on the frontier. Mm-hmm. After teaching local school, um, Mary took up the pen in, an, in a desperate effort to make ends meet and she published her first book of poetry in 1854 and then went on to publish books, reviews, poetry and articles in southern and northern periodicals. Clark's published writings are dispersed throughout the book, so it gives the letters and other family papers this lovely context and depth and provides readers with this glimpse into her remarkable ability as a writer. I think one of the most fascinating aspects about the book for me is the correspondence between Mary and William, whose marriage was highly unconventional to say the least. William's encouragement of and real pride in his wife's literary career, along with his desire to accommodate her fierce independence, didn't sit well with uh, Mary's family and friends who scorned William for his financial incompetence and his inability to provide a stable home environment for his wife and children. So after a string of business failures, the Civil War gave William the, his best opportunity to redeem himself in a sense. And he abandoned his uh, law practice in San Antonio, which wasn't going well anyway, and rushed to North Carolina in the hope that his war record from the Mexican War would secure him a prestigious senior appointment in the Confederate military. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for William, it never eventuated. And After a war wound and a stint at Fort Delaware and the bitterness of defeat really broke him and he had a scandalous association with the Republican Party and then slowly succumbed to alcoholism, which is what Mary referred to as his irritability. Mm. So the letters provide uh, an intimate and really revealing portrait of the effects of war and defeat on the Clark marriage. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the more William drank, the more Mary was left to live her own life, which she grounded in this rewarding and sustaining world she'd made for herself as a writer. The documentary story is fascinating because it allows us to see the demise of the marriage, not only through the correspondence of William and Mary, but also in the letters written by their children and Mary's extended kin. So we get all these different perspectives and it provides this really rare glimpse into the dynamics of a Southern family as they struggle to make their way in the post-war world. Other additions in the for the Reconstruction period include my book on uh, Eliza Lucent, Lucy Irian Nelson, who was a farmer's wife. Her correspondence provides us with a domestic view of Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And we also have the journals of Amalia Reed, uh, edited by Robert T. Oliver. Amalia lived in Anderson, South Carolina, and she provides us with a rare and really detailed account of life in Western South Carolina as war turned into Reconstruction. So her diary covers the period 1865 to 66. So we have some really fascinating 19th century story for readers to explore. Right. And Melissa, how about, uh, how about from the 20th? We do have some great 20th century stories. Um, one of my favorite volumes in the series is entitled Dearest Hugh. Um, historian Suzanne Cam- Cameron Linder Hurley edited the courtship letters of Gabriella Drake and Hugh McCall. And these letters provide us with really revealing insights into the social lives and the courtship and marriage practices in small towns southern, uh, in the small town south. Uh, Gabriella lived with her family in Bennettsville, South Carolina, where she met and fell in love with a young banker who had just moved to town. His name was Hugh McCall. And incidentally, he was the founder of what would eventually become Bank of America. Hugh and Gabriello exchanged letters, long and short, often several times a day. And in these charming letters, we can see the two of them struggling to understand the meaning of love and marriage and gender expectations that were shifting in a rapidly changing world. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to read you a little selection of a couple of the letters from May in 1901. Gabriella writes, My dear, dear sweetheart, Here I am spinning again and doing what my better judgment tells me I ought not to do. But, well, youth and love come but once in a lifetime, and all these follies are pardoned. I flew upstairs last night to read the sweet little note a certain someone who I love wrote me, and it was almost as good as talking to you and having you aggravate me as you did last evening. You ask me to tell you what I am going to do about you. I just cannot tell you, for I do not know myself. I do not see just how I am going to give up my love, and yet again, I do not see how I am going to say yes, and this was yes to his proposal. Uh-huh. Um, somehow I do not see how I'm ever going to say yes to anyone. I think I would be happier in loving one and in having someone love me better than all else on earth, but just cannot imagine myself surrendering my heart and soul into another's keeping. And, uh, she, she goes on at some length, but his reply the next evening is really lovely. He says, my darling sweetheart. I reckon we both are very much in love with each other, and I think we would be entirely happy if we were each other's. Don't you? My dearest angel, if we decide to start in life as life true partners, 
It will be as everything else is, an experiment. Our lives will commence from that time, and we cannot say at this time what we will do or what we will not do. We can't lay down any rule to follow, but can only do the best we can. So I really love that that sweet, sweet picture it's of lovely. courtship. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, yes. I also love the story of uh, Eileen Kilgore. The, that volume is called Stateside Soldier. And it's an edited diary of Kilgore, who was from Brookwood, Alabama. And she joined the Women's Army Corps in 1944. Mm-hmm. So the diary describes her experiences in basic training at Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, and her work as an airplane mechanic at Ellington Air Force Base. And she was one of only six women working on planes there. She also describes a later assignment as a photo lab technician. The diaries detail her excitement and her anxiety about enlisting and also the camaraderie and challenges and even the monotony of military life and labor. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I like best is that they really record the culture shock she experiences. She's this rural Alabama girl thrust into the chaos of World War II military service and moving all over the South. Um, and sharing quarters with women of different religious, ethnic, and geographic backgrounds. And that makes a profound impression on her. So I think it offers a a really interesting window into the lives of women during World War II. And uh, after the war, Eileen became a teacher and a writer. She's actually the author of three acclaimed children's books. And, And so she was very skilled at editing these diaries and providing the introduction that provided the context for the story. And she did a great job. That's great. Those are fantastic examples. And um, what, in your opinions, makes for a good documentary story? In sort of a, a second part to that question, why are these sometimes very personal and individual stories told through these edited documents important to a broader understanding of history? I'll talk some about uh, good stories. Okay. Yeah. Um, any s- story that contributes to our understanding of women in the South and features documents that can be edited into an engaging and insightful narrative is a good story for the WDLS series. Mm-hmm. And as Giselle said a little while ago, not all stories make good documentary stories. Sometimes the documentary record may be fragmented. And historians can reconstruct a lot of episodes using those fragments for a monograph or a scholarly article. But documentary editors can't necessarily build that, that context into a narrative. Mm-hmm. Perhaps all the correspondence available on an individual consists of letters received by that person, but not the ones that they wrote themselves. Right. So that's valuable material for a historian, but it may not provide the basis for a good documentary story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Giselle has thought a great deal about this, so I'll let her talk a little more about it. Okay, Giselle, what are your thoughts? Well, I can probably answer the second part of that question. So the personal and individual stories, um, I think, and that's the thing I love most about documentary editing. It's the thing that actually has drew me to it originally and it's the, it's the, thing, that, the thing that keeps me passionate about doing this work. Um, 
because documentary stories really allow us to peek through this window into what I often call the random, random messy complexity of human experience in another time and place. And as editors, we help someone from another time and place to tell their story. And in this and in these documents, we see the convergence of events and ideologies and people and places and activities. And in our case, we provide readers with access to powerful first-person accounts. And with the exception of, say, autobiographies and memoirs and oral history interviews um, where people are looking back on their lives, usually the story is very dynamic and unfolding in a woman's moment of self-reflection or in her conversation with family and friends. So these first-person accounts provide a personal dimension to what we know as the big picture or grand narrative history. And I can give you an example. Um, We know, for example, that one out of 25 white women in the South who died in 1850 died in childbirth. Mm -hmm. And we know that In 1860, more than 20% of all deaths occurred among infants and almost 43% among those five years and under. And reading the extended reflections of a mother who's lost her child provides the story behind the statistic. Mm -hmm. In a monograph, those reflections might be limited to a choice phrase or sentence. So there might be something like how sadly, how constantly we miss our sweet one. It seems impossible to realise we will never look into those eyes again. We might see a quote, something like that. Mm -hmm. But in documentary history, we see the complete document, which provides a whole new level of insight. And I'm just going to read to you an excerpt from a letter in my book, which were a letter to uh, from Eliza Lucy Arian Nelson to her niece, uh, Elizabeth. And it was in July 18, 1882, just after she'd lost her two-year-old daughter, Sophie. So I'll just read you this excerpt just to contrast the difference between that portrait of this issue and, and a documentary portrait. Mm-hmm. Okay. How sadly, how constantly we miss our sweet one. It seems impossible sometimes to realise we will never look into those eyes again or fold that dimpled form in our arms. It seems as if we must hear those little pattering feet or hear that sweet, fresh voice. She was snatched from us so suddenly, we have felt half paralysed. I do not wish Sis Lizzie to torture herself with the thought of Cordelia or me breaking down. No, thank God we can grieve without any fear of that. We pray not to grieve in a sinful and repining manner. At night I suffer most. My arms are so empty. I am as conscious all through my sleep of her loss as I used to be of her precious bodily presence. We have had much company and Top would sleep with me. I didn't once, even in half-conscious moments, mistake her for my little lovely. No, that feeling of loss is with me always. Yet we do not mourn in tears all the time. We talk of her sweet, winsome ways, and the children speak of her constantly and wish for her in their plays and repeat her her little sayings in the happiest way. Tot says precious saviour is keeping care of Sophie now. They have had no shrinking of my room or the parlour since her sickness or death. Every thought and feeling towards her is love and tenderness. They would fondle her little hands and feet as she lay white and still. When we went down to the church, we took the little casket in the carriage with us to the church where the procession procession formed and the pallbearers took it in their carriage 
Even this close contact seemed to please them. You don't know how thankful I am they feel thus and have had no nervous fears, as I used to when I was a child. We have had many friends to visit us. Everyone has shown the tenderest love, and love and sympathy is sweet. And so that's why I became a documentary editor. All right, that's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to listen to. It's hard to read. <laughs> yes. So that's that's the the kind of very intimate portrait that that we get from uh, you know from the series, which um, you know, as you said, makes a wonderful contribution to the broader scope of of history that can often be bogged down in in statistics and dates and facts, and you know, you sort of lose that stuff. You know, that makes, human that makes life real, right? Exactly. Yeah. Why don't we talk uh, a bit about how? do or don't, as the case may be, um, the volumes in the WDLS series, uh, really in in any documentary series, address the diversity of experiences, in this case of women in the 19th and 20th century South. And I'm thinking here particularly about things like race and class and the rural versus the urban experience and so forth. Um, What are the challenges of getting at some of these stories, given that your focus is on printed documents, essentially? Ah, well, it's extremely difficult to find a first-person account for the 19th century South that was not written by a privileged white Southern woman. Mm -hmm. And so class and race are often then viewed through the lens provided by those elite women. We do have one exception in the series, uh, accounts that are written by Northern women who lived in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, several years ago, we published the correspondence of, of Trifina Blancholder Fox, who was a teacher from Massachusetts who married a doctor from Louisiana. And so her correspondence provides that sort of middle class portrait of life in the South from the late antebellum period through the through Reconstruction and provides us with that non-Southern elite perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are rare and hard to find. And as we move into the 20th century, it's exciting because we see the emergence of a a much more diverse documentary landscape. And as I mentioned, Melissa and I are working on a a documentary edition on the Progressive Era, which will feature stories uh, such as Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, who was an African-American educator and civil rights pioneer, and Florida's first African-American public health nurse, and the correspondence of a mill worker in Virginia. So we've identified some really rare accounts, but they're emerging during this period, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And and what do the volumes tell us about labor broadly defined in the South through the 19th and 20th century? Well, several of the collections we have mentioned tell us something about the rich variety of paid and unpaid labor done by women in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Eileen uh, Kilgore Henderson stateside soldier, which describes her day-to-day work life and something about the structure of labor management relations in the army during World War II. Mm-hmm. A lot of the women in my collection describe work in the labor force as teachers, retail clerks, and factory workers. And of course, all of them uh, explore the endless variety of women's work on the farm. Mm-hmm. And Giselle, do you want to talk about some of the insights from the Progressive Era volume? Okay, so 
as I've mentioned our upcoming volume on the progressive era, but it does tell us a lot of um, a lot about women's paid work in the 20th century. So as has been the case in earlier eras, women's opportunities to continue to be limited by assumptions about gender and race, but the opportunities were nonetheless expanding. And middle-class women found work as teachers, nurses, social workers and writers, while poorer women turned to factory and domestic work to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. One of the documentary stories in the book features Florida's first public health nurses who were representative of this new wave of pioneer women professionals. So from the first three state health nurses in 1914 to 12 by 1916, we see these women uh, who were employed by Florida's Board of Health to bring basic disease prevention and control to the state. Other women found themselves caught up in the textile mill boom and that brought industrialisation to the south. And the book also features a rare portrait, as I've said, of a, of a young mill worker in Virginia, mm-hmm. Henrietta Aiken Kelly, who was the founder of Ch- the Charleston Female Seminary and an expert in sericulture, fought to establish a raw silk industry in South Carolina as an op- alter- employment alternative for mill workers. And we also see educators like Mary McLeod Bethune and Sophie Nisba Breckenridge who work to further African-American and women's access to education. So some of these upcoming stories promise to provide us with further insight into women and labor in the South. That's great. So um, you gave us a, a very nice snapshot of what we can be looking forward to from the series. And uh, is there anything additional from either of you that we can also be looking forward to? Uh-huh. Well, we have several things in underway. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got three Civil War diaries from Mississippi. And these are unusual because most of the diaries in the series are weighted toward the eastern seaboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these three previously unpublished diaries uh, have been used extensively in monographs, but, but have not been available to a wider audience. Also, we have uh, under contract the Angela Gregory Memoir. Angela was one of Louisiana's most influential sculptors in the 20th century. Um, She studied in Paris and produced amazing work over six decades, including uh, an expressive portrait bust of a young African-American woman completed in 1928 and sculptures for the Louisiana State Capitol and a monument to the French founder of New Orleans. So drawing upon her recollections and unpublished correspondence and diaries uh, from from her life, uh, the editor is is developing a multi-layered documentary story recounting her time in Paris. Mm, okay. And of course, Giselle's already mentioned the Progressive Era volume, but we're always on the lookout for new projects. Um, we particularly love to add volumes on civil rights activism. Mm-hmm on the 20th century women's movement in the South, on LGBT history in the South. We could use more more work on the 18th century as well. Mm -hmm. So if any of your listeners are interested in consulting with us about potential projects, we encourage them to get in touch with us. And where can they do that most easily? Through the press website or how would that work? Uh, we can give you our email addresses. That would um, be great. Are you willing to do that? Absolutely. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Mine is melissa.walker at converse.edu. Okay. And mine is g.roberts at latrobe, uh, which is one word, .edu.au. 
Okay, fantastic. Hopefully you'll uh, receive a flood of new new projects coming your way. We uh, hope, hope so. so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Melissa Rocker and Giselle Roberts, um, thank you very much for sharing with us all your work on editing documents and your work on the WDLS series. And thanks very much for joining us on this episode of Working History. Thanks thank for you having, for having us. Thanks again to Melissa Walker and Giselle Roberts, co-editors of the Women's Diaries and Letters of the South series published by the University of South Carolina Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.